everyone, and welcome to episode number 31 of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today so that we can talk about real-world software problems with people that face them. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, or leave feedback wherever you're listening, and we can bring content that matters to you. Today, we are continuing on our left-hand side building of software um, requirements and um, the beginning of the SDLC by jumping into Git and the management of your code. If you find yourself lacking in Git knowledge today, um, or you are interested about the security context of Git and how it, it affects the world of DevSecOps, this is a good episode uh, for you. And it's probably going to turn into a small series where not really sure how many episodes we'll uh, need to spend on this, but part one of TBD. Uh, Let's for, say 200 to be safe. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about it forever, especially if we get more opinions on this than ours. Um, but I'm joined again by Simon, my wonderful co-host and software engineer extraordinaire who will be um, handling the developer side, the engineer side, the normal user of Git uh, as we get into it today. Um, but I do think that uh, using Git securely and uh, having some strategy uh, around using it is a, is a good first step. So we're going to try to break this down into um, the what is Git, uh, how to use it, we'll say correctly, but, uh, our opinion of correctly yes. and, uh, and you know, how you might be, um, able to, to get up to speed or, uh, enhance your skills and get, and then just why and how it affects security in general. So, uh, I think to start off, um, you know, Git is a version control system. Uh, some other folks may use other version control systems, but Git has really made a push. And I guess in the last decade, maybe even longer. And if you are developing software, you've probably run into it or someone that used it. Uh, I think that security has a, has a tremendous impact here and we'll get into it. But to start off, um, I think for the most part, uh, my understanding of when, when folks are start, uh, first learning Git, um, the, the commands they, they learn, Simon, are probably like uh, commit or merge and push and they're just generating code and finding it a good way to to balance everything and then beyond that you know what happens and and how it turns into a professional career or using it professionally i think that there's a huge delta there so i'm hoping that you know you can shed some light on maybe the progression of i just started using git in college and now as a as a professional like differences that you find uh, or nuances or or you know things that you think maybe uh, folks learn uh, that it should be unlearned as quickly as possible or pointed into another direction um, beyond that initial, you know, commit, push, merge. I love it. And I, even before we get started, I just, I'm so excited about this topic. I, I can't express on audio how excited I am, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a super big nerd for process. And I think this is one of those tools and I'll, I'll explicitly state that this is a tool. You don't absolutely need it, but it will make your life a lot easier if you get to, to learn how to use this correctly. And I think, you know, it serves two purposes, in my opinion. One is it maintains, you know, a state of truth for you that you feel comfortable having. And I, I think that's a really important thing, especially when you're in a larger industry and things are changing quickly. You need to have that source of fallback, that source of truth that 
you know if something breaks you can you can go to it and you understand you know when things change in that particular location of your code and and secondly the other important thing is it it lets you be adventurous um you know if you get get into some of the fun stuff like branching and and forking repositories um you can you know go crazy try new things learn new language maybe try some crazy new implementation of code that you're not maybe comfortable with on your own and you know you won't break anything you can iterate on your at your own speed and um create different versions of that so i think it's a super powerful way to um you know, develop quickly while still staying safe. Um, to answer your first question, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, any new engineer, I can think of my first exposure to version control, um, which I believe was SVN. Um, that was painful. I'm not going to dig into that too much. We're going to stay on Git. But uh, yeah, I mean, my first understanding was, oh, cool. Like, there's this thing that lets me essentially, like, save pieces of my code. So you know, I, I figured out how to hackily get it to, you know, authenticate on my computer through like an SSH key. I learned, you know, git pull, cool. I can pull code. I can commit code. Commit is, I, you know, it's my save button. Awesome. And then push lets it, you know, update remotely. You know, and that's great. Um, and you can survive on that pretty much entirely until you meet another person <laughs> that uses git and then you know you encounter your first merge conflict and you have like a midlife crisis and everything is terrible and you can't just git clone your problems away anymore and that's when i think uh you know you need to start having that realization that the tool is a little bit more powerful and serves a little bit more of a of a purpose than than you think and um yeah you know that's i think that's where i would assume probably a lot of people start um, and then you start to ask questions, you know, what is a merge conflict? Um, you know, why is there such thing as a branch other than main? Um, why are people developing on that branch? Um, like, why aren't they just, you know, working directly off of, uh, of the main branch like I am? Or, um, you know, like, what's the true meaning behind commit messages? Why do people make them verbose? Why do some people just say, you know, get commit changes um, and move on with their life? So I think that's probably where people start. Um, and then you know, the next level after that is you decide, you know, as your group, as your organization, how do you want to use this tool and what sort of safeguards do you have when it comes to your Git flow, your Git process that will allow you to remain stable and also allow you to, to build quickly. Yeah, um, you said a couple of things in there that I do want to comment on. And um you mentioned cloning all your problems away, uh, oh, which yeah. is which you know I I can relate to for sure. And it's I think that one of like you said one of the first things that uh, I really hit hard was um, one it that merge conflict thing. You start to like try to figure <laughs> out what that syntax you know that syntax becomes second nature, but um, what that looks like and how to handle it. And even now, I mean, with uh, things like. Uh, Visual Studio Code or whatever, a lot of this is handled for you in terms of yeah, the diff. The GUIs. Um, so it really helps with that. Um, but also uh, learning. So this is this is like one thing that I wish I could unlearn, which is like uh, hard hard resetting all of your problems away. Yes. Um, so it's and so you know that is that that I used to look at as that like an emergency pull lever, right? But um, sometimes that can cause you many more problems than you think. Uh, any any experiences with that or um i guess views on even using it yeah and i like 
it's it's such an interesting problem and and at least for me you know i can't speak for other engineers but my my solution to coping with that was essentially creating the like my own mental version of git in my brain and what i mean by that is yeah you encounter your first conflict and like you see you know if you're using the command line those weird like arrow braces that tell you like something in this code is is good and bad and it's different and i don't know what to do about it and yeah what i used to do is just i would clone the same repository and i would clone that or get that branch loaded up and i would actually just do a command line diff and see like where the problem was and just resolve the conflict myself which is essentially what git is trying to do for you uh in a more simple way and that sounds normal that sounds like a normal thing you can do but the reason why git works like that is there's more than one change it's a series of changes and so you're you're essentially replaying the world of this code and and if you don't take that in consideration cloning just from end state to end state can really easily introduce problems. So, you know, I, I definitely encourage people who are in that kind of next level phase where I, I don't know how to take those training wheels off and, and commit to like, no pun intended, commit to figuring out how to unmerge code. Um, it's, it's tough, but you know, there's GitHub has really good documentation available on, on how to reserve merge conflicts. And Ken, like you said, like there's a bunch of UIs now that really, really nicely kind of show you where your conflicts are and what happens, um, you know, whether you choose to commit to, you know, the branch you're merging into or vice versa um, and what the final impact is. So I, I, I think it's a it, it's gotten a lot easier through the years, I think, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think. For me, what that comes down to, one of the things I had to learn is that um, Git is not a tool that excuses sloppiness. Right? <laughs> no, it's brutal. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's you almost think because when you start, you're like, oh, you know, when you hear people talk about it, if you're just getting into it and maybe it's changed since we've aged. But um, it's it, it's almost like, oh, you know, everything's tracked in Git and you you can't make any mistakes. You can always roll back and, you know, don't worry about it. Like, well, you just if you have problems, like you can experiment and branch off and do what you need to do. What they don't tell you is that if you do make a mistake, like rolling that back is not as easy as progressing forward. So it's yes, it's all possible. And that history is always there and you can always revert and you can always take it back. But doing that correctly and doing that without conflict and doing that without causing a headache to other people in your organization, that's where the skill comes in and where it's it's really important that you read the documentation, understand what each of these commands are doing so that as you're progressing, um, you, you're making it easier for yourself to revert and to uh, come back. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, in that vein, I know you and I have talked about this and we're just going to go straight into it. Um, can you explain the difference between using um, or when to use and when not to use uh, between merging uh, code and rebasing code and maybe the advantages of, of each of these? <clears throat> Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think it's easy to think they're doing the same thing and they're and they're really not. And you know, I, I don't think there's a specific right answer to this. I think you just need to make sure you're consistent with the other people that you're working with. But for me, um, I think rebase is is great when you're developing on on your own branch. Um, and I, I'll explain why that's that's uh, 
my personal opinion, but, um, you know, typically my, my Git flow is you have a main branch and that's, you know, that's a stable release artifact that's been, uh, merged in and that's the, the star word right there is merged. Um, same thing with release branches. Um, you have a develop branch, which also includes merges. Um, and then you have your own personal branch. Um, and that's something that you've checked out likely of develop. Um, and that's where I think merge is important. And the reason why I say that is merge kind of is very clever in the way that it really just replays commits from the branch that you're targeting into your code without really making a fuss about it. And what I mean by that is there's no new commit. There's no new um, like sign that something has changed other than the actual physical code itself. So when you come to put that up for review, it's just your changes. You put that up and you say, you know, this is my Wild West branch that I want to merge in. I've rebased it a few times. I'm basically just saying, like, I'm up to par with the branch that I'm, I'm looking to work with, um, and here are my changes. Where I think merge is much more useful is when you're deciding to make that commitment to a much more serious branch like main, like your release branch, because what happens is once that thing is ready to merge, you don't rebase anymore, you merge it in. And what that merge does is you're saying, I'm making this change to a big branch, and you'll see that, you'll actually see a separate commit show up in your log saying, you know, Simon merged commit, whatever, whatever, pull request into main two hours ago. And so what's, what I find really useful about that is if you're backtracking, and again, the more Git hygiene you have, the better this is, is you can see those actual divots through your code and there are most milestones uh, through history that you've changed. You can see that, you know, Simon committed these six things. And then after that, Ken committed these four things. And you can really see breakthroughs through that. So debugging and just understanding your source of truth is a lot, a lot easier. Um, Again, rebasing, super, super great when you're working on your own, you're messing around with stuff. You don't see all of that bloat. You don't see all of those extra merge commits. You don't see all of that show up. So you can just really focus on what you're trying to do, address the conflicts as they show up to make sure that you're up to speed and kind of move on with your life. Doing that work up front, basically, before yes. you get to the, the big <laughs> overhaul and then have to, to figure out everything. Um, so you mentioned, and I agree, like I think that, I think, folks are fearful of rebase because when they are replaying those and then they have to deal again. So this goes back to understanding what a merge conflict looks like or what a, what a conflict looks like and handling that yourself. Um, and two, the fact that uh, as things are playing over, you're sort of, um, there's, it's like more granular work and it, it feels like, right. I think that there is this, for me anyway, there was this psychological difference between like, okay, I see these things happening and I don't understand it completely. And so I'm really afraid of where this is going. Right. So you, whereas a merge, it's like, oh, you know, I, I merge. I can't figure out this merge conflict. I screwed up. I'm just going to clone my problems away. <laughs> right. So that I think again. that it's, it's really understanding what rebase is, is doing and playing over those uh, uh, commits and making sure that you have an intimate understanding of how it works as you use it. And the, I think that right, you're right. The easiest way to do that is on your own branch, on something that is not going to, to mess up anything crazy. Um, but you did sort of lead into something that I really wanted to talk about in this episode, which is um, branching and branching strategy. And so uh, when it comes to rebasing and merging, I think the security challenge is there that if you don't understand what code is changing and uh, someone in security has to do a PR or review for security issues or whatever, and you're merging and you're making changes, sometimes it becomes difficult to review those uh, from a security perspective and say, yeah, this makes sense because you're overwriting or changing things that have already been reviewed. And that that's where I think it starts to get kind of hairy, especially if you aren't up to date with that latest 
branch and something really oh, yeah. small was like changed that fixed the security issue. And then you're like, oh, well, this looks right. So I'm going to go ahead and change this. And then maybe that doesn't get a, uh, a security review because it's inside of a different process, which is what I've seen usually. So like sometimes, you know, uh, bug fixes don't always go through security reviews. I've seen security features, I've seen features go through much more rigorous secu security reviews. So you have your new feature, feature gets uh, pushed and merged and, and tied in. Uh, someone has a bug fix, they're working on it, they change a bunch of stuff, they're not up to date, maybe it, it, got, it got sidetracked because it became less of a priority. They go to merge, looks like a very simple change, but they're bringing in old code that like, they're like, oh no, I know what that looks like. And they, they sort of repair it backwards. And that's where I right. see that be a huge security problem because you're reintroducing these security bugs unintentionally because you have a bad uh, bug fix process or you don't have enough security people to look at every PR and that that process is, is sort of screwy. So then it, it sort of comes to me and I have my own opinion on this, but how do you think um, projects should be branched or strategized in terms of uh, larger code bases or obviously team large bodies of work where a bunch of teams are working on it. Uh, you mentioned like a main branch and a developed branch and your personal branch, which I think we've all seen that sort of that tree. But um, as you get into more complex uh, software systems, you have features and bug fixes and uh, security features and advisories and chores and updates and, you know, libraries and all this kind of stuff is, do you have any particular strategy that you would put out there that you found works in terms of, uh, get flow and complex projects that you think works well with, uh, security teams and other teams? Yeah. And, and first of all, like I would love to hear more, you know, pain points on your side of how it is to, you know, enter in like a pull request and see, you know, coming in from outside of someone who's familiar with the application understanding, um, but I mean, first and foremost, I would say rebase early and often. I can't stress that enough. Um, I think you you know mentioned the topic of merge conflicts and how they can introduce problems. I've I've seen situations where you know you can see a merge conflict with maybe a one line change, uh, some annotation got moved around or something. And if you see those, I think it's it's important to ask what what changed and don't just pretend that like oh, I'll just take you know whatever's in main and move on. Like I assume that's good. That that may not be the case. You know that that annotation. <clears throat> excuse me. That annotation might have been you know some sort of security header that got moved elsewhere or no longer exists anymore. So um, I think you have to be really careful about what you're accepting to merge into your branch before review. Um, secondly, keep keep pull requests small. Um, I think every pull request should have a purpose. Um, they should be tied to some sort of ticket, whether it be a bug, whether it be a configuration change, even if it's you know uh, changing the number of threads that some like worker pool is using. Document that. That might bite you a year from now, and you have no idea what that was there for. So, um, you know, making that those little commitments early and often, making tickets, tracking that work, making it small for things that are larger. That's always going to happen. Um, I, I like to compare it to almost um, kind of pitching like a rough draft or something. Uh, you're you're going to have big pull requests. It happens sometimes. You, there's no getting around having a huge chunk of something. You can make a feature branch. That's an option. Um, you know iterate on something small, build it into something that's not going to get it released. Eventually, everybody signs off, you merge it in, and you deploy, and all is good. Um, I, I suggest design reviews beforehand, I think. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where I've seen pull requests that maybe they come from another team member that is maybe a little bit more junior in the code base or not familiar with that language. 
what happens with that is just there's so many comments that you either have engineers that get burnt out or they're worried to hurt someone's feelings. Um, and you kind of have this giant stagnant PR that sits there for days and days and days and days. Um, and that can be resolved by having those design discussions early. You know, it's kind of one of those spend an hour, save the week, um, figure out what the purpose is, figure out the goal, give some suggestions and build from there rather than coming up with this giant verbose thing that people are unwilling to comment on. Um, but yeah, ultimately my, my two biggest things are rebasing and, and keeping things small and consistent. Usually there's, there's a reason why your code is so big and it should be able to be broken apart. Um, I, I am curious though, um, like on, on your side, when it comes to, you know, Git flow and these practices, do you, do you feel like, you know, your experience through security, you've practiced this a lot. Is this more exposure to product teams and seeing how they operate? And the reason why I ask is I, I would imagine, you know, the code bases that you have to work in personally are probably smaller, more, more focused on like a library or, you know, not like a full fledged application. So I'm curious if you find value uh, in these flows or if you use them or if you, you know, maybe are seeing the same patterns in security. Yeah, well, a couple of things. One, um, on the um, on like the corporate side, my experience has always been that, uh, well, I, I would I would uh, argue with you to the day's end is that none of them are small. In fact, uh, when you're looking at uh, like a, a dedicated AppSec person, um, you are looking at someone that needs to be intimately familiar with all applications that they are responsible for. And so now that's sort of evolved into uh, kind of the industries like a product security team or a product security member, right? Um, where they can be dedicated to a specific team for a short period of time. People with good Git flow or good practices within Git, I think, will have an easier time with their security team because it's easier to understand the project and get up to speed much faster. And also the things that they're reviewing. So if that person is assigned to do PRs and they are small, it, it's yes, it's much easier to review a small PR because you have to you have the context and you can look within that as opposed to trying to see how everything affects each other. Right. I think that, you know, similarly, I've had the same experience coming in just like doing a static code review, right? Where you have to understand all these things and figure out how they play together and analyze the code and figure out uh, manually, you know, where things go and how they operate. But it, if you look at it like holistically, you're when you look at the application from soup to nuts, you're looking at like one giant PR, one right. big merge. It's just the whole app. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's like I've so I can say that I see I've seen both. So I've um, I, I've looked at entire code bases from start to finish and like you scope in and out things and that kind of thing. And you're sort of taking that practice and reducing it to a smaller context when you're looking at something like a PR or when you're looking at something like a feature or a bug or whatever. Now, when you're working in these projects, I think having this Git flow is really important because you need to understand when security is involved in your particular organization. So are they involved on every PR? If not, what's the approval process? What gets approved by security and what doesn't? Do you even have security approval in any of these PRs? Is that necessary? Or is it just a tail end process where security does a code review every two weeks or in every sprint cycle or whatever? Right. We talk about getting that stuff earlier and earlier into the process. And it's so hard because of these things, right? Because the security team is usually, um, I will say understaffed, but even if <laughs> you don't agree that we're understaffed, you can say that there are many less security folks than there are engineers. And so if you look at it this way, if you have 
engineers looking for functional issues, like you have a PR and every single PR that goes through, you have to have a review by a peer, a met like, and that person is not security conscious, then you should have somebody that's staffed in security for every single one of those. So it's, it's sort of like, think about the body of work that they have to look at and, um, and sort of just like, let that sink in for a second is that how you cannot expect somebody uh, with that much responsibility with so many less people to understand those things as intimately as you do as an engineer or developer. Oh, absolutely. So it's, it becomes really difficult. So the, the simpler that it becomes for us to review it, the easier the job is, the easier it is to get the approvals. Now, to your point where you were talking about like keeping PR small and there's always going to be this large PR. Yes, I get that. Um, and that's true. But I, I'm, I'm with you on the, the small PR thing, attaching them to a bug because if you or attaching them to some JIRA ticket or whatever it might be, because one of the things I think gets lost and I think the reason that it gets lost is timeframes and deployment dates and release dates is when you have um, good process and you have time to dig through that, everything starts to work really well. People are like following the process and you know you can get security review and they approve it or whatever. But then there's like crunch time where the release is coming up and it's like, oh, we got to get all this stuff in. So it's just like one giant PR after another and they don't get attached to a ticket or they have a, a screwed up ticket or something like that. Uh, and I think that gets much more uh, complex and much harder to deal with over time. Um, and so how do you do that? Right. I think it's just sticking to the program uh, and trying to understand that when you submit those big PRs, your understaffed security team is going to take much longer to get through those PRs. And when that PR has one small issue that could have been an individual problem that you could have like, you know, merged everything else or pushed everything else into the, the main branch. Now there's one little thing is holding up that entire PR. So right. the, the smaller you can break that stuff up, the faster you're going to get the things that you want pushed into your code because your security team won't have to review as complex of a change if you can make that happen, right? I mean, I know that there are <laughs> circumstances where that's not always going to be possible, but it just benefits you in the long run. It feels faster now, but when security has to go through review, if you have that uh, process at all, it's gonna, you're gonna get held up there. And I think that's where um, it's like one of those things where it looks, it looks better for you, but you're making someone else's life more complicated, which ultimately kicks everything back to you to make your life more complicated. And, and that breeds to, in my opinion, an adversarial relationship between security and engineering. So those are the problems I see is that if you don't have a good process through that, especially in enterprise organizations, um, it becomes harder. Small shops, you can almost just wing it, man. Like if you have <laughs> like five people on your team and you want to just like YOLO um, <laughs> and you have one security person, then you can you can do all this like fast and loose stuff very easily. I yeah, feel like crazy. once you get into like these larger teams and you have 100 plus developers, 200 plus developers, or you're working across like 80 or 100 applications, which you and I have both seen, um, it, it's like that stuff doesn't, um, I don't think it scales. I don't think it scales not to have like some sort of process of how people work together because you need so many eyes on these things and there are so many moving parts to a large deployment like that. Anyway, I rambled for like 10 minutes. So how about you talk? <laughs> or... 
No, I, I, I agree. And I think that even doesn't even have to breach the realms of DevOps and security, even with just product engineers in general. Without these these things in place, there's there's no way you can scale. There's going to be too many things lost under the cracks, new people trying to learn code and thinking you know what's going on, or failed deploys and bugs. Um, and and I I think your comment on kind of those crunch crunch day scenarios where you're you're rushing to get out the finish line and uh, you know I I think that is probably the the biggest source of when things get missed, especially for security, um, just because you're sacrificing um, you know safety for the for the the needs of a quick deployment. I'll say I think my my biggest struggle when it comes to this topic with security and and having a good process is just finding a healthy balance because I mean yes I would I would love a perfect world where you know I have a security person just checking every single one of my pull requests that go through the door but that's that's not possible especially with what you said the ratio of product engineer security is not going to work so having to to figure out when it's appropriate I I do find it to be a struggle and and I find it a struggle in two points one pull request just trying to almost like think one step ahead and see like oh maybe this is a new endpoint link in security talk about you know potential issues or you know me personally thinking this is just an internal change it's business logic why would i need to waste a security engineer's time which i'm sure i was wrong on on several times and i think the same thing happens when it comes to looking at deployments as a whole and i've noticed this is you know if you're talking about a a deployment change who's going to be surfacing that change it will be a product engineer and you know, you get asked what's going out the door and, and what are the potential issues. My, you know, my first thought is going to be scalability, bugs, what's the functionality that's changing? And it's, you know, oh, a, a new endpoint that returns uh, some information. Great. You know, and I, I think if, to me, I always think like, did I provide enough information for a security engineer to perk their ears up and say, hold on, I'd like to dive into that more? Or am I so focused on the product engineering side that I'm essentially, you know, uh, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where I'm pitching this thing and subconsciously, you know, omitting the information that security would find valuable. Maybe that's a little bit too meta, meta but, you know, that's something that I've, I've thought about. Yeah, I. So um, security is not going to find everything. And I don't think that you can expect that um, everyone in that that security is going to be able to review every change. I, I think that's probably unrealistic unless you have the staff for it right i think that just like we were talking right. about if you have if you're like a security champion or somebody on every team that can run security reviews that's fine um but i think one of the big things i would say is in order to make that scalable you can there are a couple things you can do one is you can create a checklist of security items for your development team that is not OWASP top 10 or like something super general but like very specific um, security requirements that need to be checked in every PR. And this way you can take people that are security aware or even developers on the team or a security champion program, and you can focus them on making sure that they are approving this. They are taking on the security approval and they are approving for these security requirements. They're not doing a security review or security analysis. They're just making sure that they've had a once over to check for things like, does this require access control? Uh, is there, is there new input coming in or, you know, are the headers correct or is it changing security headers or just like you said, right? Like things that, you know, might be problems or that have been problems in the past that through your, your very well done feedback loops and lessons learned and retrospectives, you've come up and said, okay, these new things are security requirements. We always want to have, if you can enable engineers to make those checks, 
the security doesn't have to be involved every time. And then security can focus on either larger PRs or they can focus on security features and reviewing those, or they can focus on specific changes to security areas. Because I think, just like I said, I don't think it's necessarily unrealistic to have a security review in every PR, but it is unrealistic if you're not going to staff for that. So if you don't have the money, you don't have the budget, if you don't have the people, you can absolutely, you, you can't do it. Um, there is no SaaS tool that's 100% effective. There's no DAS tool that's 100% effective. And there's no security practitioner that's 100% effective. Uh, and if if we had that, like we wouldn't be, it wouldn't be such a hot topic, right? It wouldn't be such a big industry. So I think that the more eyes you can get on it, the more eyes you can train, great. But you have to understand that not everyone is a security engineer. Like we look at code differently for a reason. And I think that it helps to have those different lenses. Um, but you also have to be aware of like the, the challenges associated with that. So I think that if you can, the more you can enable engineers to do the security review, the better. Um, and that all goes in with the training. Like that means that they will probably be less likely to introduce those issues in the future if they know that they are checking for them, if everyone's trained on them. Uh, also, it allows you to grow that over time. So if your engineers start to get really, really, really good at these things, um, then now you don't have to worry about it as much. So they can still be a part of your checklist, but it's not going to take as much time to get through them because you're just not making that mistake anymore. Um, so I think that it's just a, it's a gradual process of training and validation amongst the engineers and making sure that that is a requirement um, and less about saying things like your application has to be completely free of XSS or make sure all the access control in, is in place. Well, how, like who, why, like, how do you do that? Right. Yeah. What, where do I start? That is not a, <laughs> that's not a checkable list of things. Like we have a definition of done, right. Which isn't like all encompassing that it has to like a hundred percent be all this. Uh, but we do have like test driven development, which I know you have an opinion on. We've talked about, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we, we've talked about writing tests and the different types of tests. And until we have those same things for security, we need to start small. And I think like if you can find those easy things for engineers to do like that, that's going to be huge. I think that like the, the smallest little things can have the, like a large impact. If you can just come up with that list of granular 10 things your engineers can check for and call it like the security checklist you have to go through, you know, definition of secure or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I love that. It's just like the like our CD CI CD pipeline discussion is understand your ecosystem and how you can enhance it rather than trying to completely change it. Yeah, agreed. So, um so we talked a little bit, so we talked about um some strategy features and uh develop branches. We've talked about some things you can do to uh help with adding security to your your Git process or code review process or PRs or whatever it might be. There is so much more to talk about uh, that we had on the, on the list that I think we'll have to carry into another episode. So um, I will, I'll rattle those off at the end, but Simon, anything else about this, this uh, topic you want to dig into before we close out or some final words since I rambled for most of this episode. As did I, uh, it's just, it's how we roll here and relating to DevSecOps. <laughs> Uh, no, just that, you know, it gets a, a, a huge, huge tool. Um, it's, it's extremely powerful. There's a bunch of commands. Uh, I just encourage anyone who's listening, like reach out. If you've got questions, if you disagree with us, or if you want to hear us talk about maybe a specific command or a specific process or 
uh, you're just unsure about where to start with Git, um, we, we'd love to keep this discussion open. So feel free to reach out. Cool. Yes, all of those things. Some some areas that we'll probably talk about um, coming up in the next sort of Git areas uh, that we didn't get in today is further branching strategies. Like you mentioned that we want to talk about some of the problems there, like feature, like issues that security has with different branching strategies. So we could we'll probably dig into some of that. Also, some of the administrative things around Git that we never really got into, like you mentioned SSH keys and access control and what that looks like. And we all know about people finding secrets in code repositories and how to treat oh, yes. uh, data that uh, exists in Git. You know, it is a huge data repository and it is commonly used in attacks when it's getting a hold of. So uh, just something to think about there. Uh, we'll also probably want to talk about rolling things back. Like we mentioned the issue. Uh, one of the things I did want to talk about is like, you know, maybe pointing people in the direction of rolling things uh, back securely uh, and making sure that like these reverts and things of that nature are are done well and areas that they can go to for that. Uh, but we're going to we're going to dig into it a little bit. I know we got into just the, the surface, um, but we will definitely be discussing things like security tools you can add to your Git pipeline. Um, we talk about triggers and things that you can uh, put into uh, Git to to sort of help you out from a security perspective. Um, if you'd like to hear anything in, uh, in particular about um, Git or our opinions on it, please reach out, Twitter, email, uh, the website, wherever you want to uh, to hit us up. You can get us on Twitter at R2DSO. You can email us security at R2DSO.com. Uh, you can even comment if you want to do it publicly and do do that. Uh, we will be happy to answer there. Uh, and that that's it. Simon, any last words? Just get to getting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> let's uh, let's do that. Um, so that closes it out. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.